today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, cracking the code on crashing the line at call centers. This story really is troubling. It's fascinating. I think we should explore uh, the, the implications of this. The Tech Modernization Fund gets a thumbs up from one of its earliest evangelists. These are right at the heart of what the TMF was intended for. And a new data tool to fight waste, fraud, and abuse. And it's a very effective tool in trying to figure out with $5 trillion going out the door, where are the places we really need to focus on. It's Thursday, October 7th, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The chief information officer of the Navy will drive consolidation of systems and continue a rethinking of the service's cyber posture that started because of the pandemic. Aaron Weiss says a review he calls Supernova will examine the department's data analytics platform, too. Weiss says his greatest fear about gains made during the pandemic is that things, quote, just snap back to the way we used to do it. Three more Biden administration nominees for Defense Department jobs are a step closer to confirmation. Deputy Undersecretary for Research and Engineering nominee David Honey, Assistant Secretary for Manpower and Reserve Affairs nominee Brenda Fulton, and Deputy Administrator of the National Nuclear Security Administration nominee Corey Hinderstein were before the Senate Armed Services Committee today. The chairman of the committee, Jack Reed, praised all three nominees at the hearing. The Justice Department will use the False Claims Act to fine companies that don't disclose cyber breaches or don't meet federal cyber guidelines. Tim Starks is senior editor of CyberScoop. He's writing about this story at cyberscoop.com. Tim, welcome. What's the genesis of this? What is driving this uh, from the part of the Justice Department? And uh, Deputy Attorney General Lisa Monaco, welcome. Hey, thanks. There's a, there's a pretty enormous push going on right now within the administration, but also within Congress to make sure that companies of varying kinds, uh, depending on which agency we're talking about and which, which part of Congress we're talking about, that, that companies of very, varying kinds are reporting when they suffer a major breach. And the, the, the idea is that in cases like, say, the big solar winds hack from last December that, that kind of spread throughout that, that one, ag- that one uh, contractor, it's not just a contractor for federal agencies, but, but one supplier, um, that, that, that if that had not been voluntarily disclosed by FireEye when they, when they found it, when that cybersecurity company found it, we would be, have seen that gone even further than it did. And that's sort of making everybody think about when do we, how do we want to be able to know who, who is being hit and by whom, and how quickly can we share that information such that others will not be hit. So that's, that's the genesis of the overall movement. Um, the contractor element is the easiest piece for the federal government to do because it's the piece that they have authority over. Um, other things require Congress to take action. So in Congress, they're talking about things like critical infrastructure owners and operators, in addition to contractors. But you, saw, you first saw some of the elements of this popping up with the May executive order from uh, President Biden on cybersecurity, where they started talking about, we want federal contractors to be doing more of these kinds of security steps. One of them did involve uh, reporting. So this, is, this, this from DOJ is more of the enforcement end of it, if you will. You report that Monaco said very, very hefty fines will come for government contractors. You write when they skirt federal cyber guidelines or fail to disclose breaches. Do we know what that means, or is this just the beginnings of this, and and we will learn those details over time? Maybe I guess when some of those fines actually go against contractors, that'll that'll be the that'll be the the case. But but the leeway in the actual False Claims Act is pretty big. 
this is this is a law that dates back to the Civil War, and back when uh, I think the virginal fines were just two thousand dollars per violation. Now they have a somewhat more complicated formula for um, I think it's up to three times the damages, and then some other element of it that's linked to inflation. But you can start to see how that would start to get into the very very hefty uh, category that she was talking about the substantial fines. Um, I don't know yet, and I don't think they necessarily have identified yet how they're going to identify what kind of damages are caused by a company not reporting a breach or by a company not using these um, security rules that have been proliferating uh, for contractors within the administration. You have a lot more in your story, Tim. I encourage people to read it. Thanks very much for coming on to talk about it. Thanks for having me. You can read Tim's story, all of our headlines, and many other stories at fedscoop.com and cyberscoop.com. Leading government experts like the chairman of the Senate Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs Committee, Senator Gary Peters, will join me at Palo Alto's Public Sector Ignite Virtual Conference, Thursday, November 18th. I hope you'll do it, too. You'll learn about key cybersecurity issues impacting agencies, including zero trust, endpoint detection and response, and secure remote access. You can sign up now at ignite.paloaltonetworks.com. The Internal Revenue Service Call Center answers only about 25% of the calls taxpayers make to it. One solution may be gaming the system. Danny Werfel runs the government practice at the Boston Consulting Group. He's former commissioner of the Internal Revenue Service, and he's also the co-host of the Gov Actually podcast for FedScoop. Danny, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. The company called ENQ swamps the IRS's switchboard with its own calls then sells desirable time-saving slots near the head of the hold line to accountants and tax preparers willing to pay up to $1,000 a year. There's nothing illegal about this, Danny, but is there a potential implication here for the taxpayers who are trying to get in and for the agency itself? Welcome. Well, first of all, thank you, Francis, for having me on the show. I'm super excited about this new, this new platform and being, being able to talk to you uh, again about these issues. Look, it's this story really is troubling. It's fascinating. I think we should explore uh, the the implications of this in other, uh, you know, of a of a of a company coming in and essentially um, taking over uh, and and flooding the zone with these phone calls and selling spots because the IRS isn't the only call center um, doing critical work on behalf of the government, and so this is something that should be looked at not just by the IRS through that lens, but through other government agencies uh, as well that are fielding these types of phone calls. And the notion that that, that uh, someone would, would enter in and, and profit off of that type of disruption is uh, something that we should be looking at. You know, I, I think the, the issue here, though, is also a better understanding of what happens when we divest or underinvest in government services. And, you know, the IRS call center, you know, is an important part of how the tax system works. You know, the other thing that's going on, if you're underinvesting in the IRS call center while creating more complexity in the tax code, you know, you're, it's a perfect storm of problem because the more complex the tax code is, the more questions citizens and companies and others are going to have and tax preparers are going to have. It works better if you're going to have a complex tax system that they have a place to go to get their questions answered. And the IRS has set up a structure to do that. But if you don't fund it and people 
you know, are either, uh, you know, not filling slots or walking away from the job or they don't have all the right tools and the right technologies, you know, the, the system is going to start to be vulnerable. And it's vulnerable, apparently, for this type of, of situation, which I never would have predicted. I doubt the IRS thought of it is either, but it's something they need, you know, obviously, hopefully they can address. Yeah. And, and the fact that it's the fact that it's not illegal doesn't matter as far as the implications, not just for the IRS, but as you say, every agency has very critical call centers and communication centers with citizens that it would seem to me at some point in time, probably very soon, if not this guy, somebody else is going to go, oh, well, maybe I need to address the call center problem at whatever other agency is painful for citizens to deal with. And we'll see this cropping up over and over and over again across the government and and this accessibility issue for the average citizen becomes really a big problem. I mean, but maybe the easiest solution, Francis, is uh, in the short term or maybe the smartest solution is to increase the IRS, help the IRS and increase its performance. So the difference between um, me just calling in or me using this company is 30 seconds or 45 seconds and it's not worth the money versus there being this dramatic difference of maybe I don't even get through. And so I'm willing to pay this premium to get to the front of the line. And so you can make the case that you could make it illegal. You could try to crack down on it or you can ensure that there's really no there's not this sufficient significant gap so that a company like this can exploit it. Um, so, look, I could go either way in terms of how to solve it and, and debate it. I'm not I'm, I'm not sure what the right answer is from a public policy standpoint at this point. It's going to be an interesting debate. But I think bottom line is we shouldn't divest in important government services and allow these things to happen. And that's and we've done it at the IRS. We've done it elsewhere. I think at the end of the day, we have to look at ourselves and say, what are the critical, important government functions that, that need to operate effectively versus those that are, are less priority? And you can, uh, you know, kind of uh, defund those in favor of other priorities. The IRS call center is critical to the administration of the nation's tax system. And even though it's unpopular and the tax collector is never popular, it doesn't mean we shouldn't fund it and make sure it works effectively because it could be as unpopular as, as anything. It's critical. The volume here blows my mind, Danny. I mean, I've been, you know, I've been following this stuff for a long time. I had no idea what was going on there volume wise. Uh, you know, when I was at the IRS, I did a tour of the call center in Atlanta and actually got to sit down with one of the operators and, and professionals and, and actually kind of listen in to some calls, you know, as a neutral, like just kind of understanding how it goes so that I can have a better appreciation for what the job is. And, you know, I, I'll tell you, when I listened to some of these calls, I didn't hear like angry people yelling at the IRS. I, I heard mostly people just like with a real desire to get this right mm -hmm. and an appreciation for the IRS employee at the other end of the call helping. It wasn't, you know, I think you have this this mindset of like, oh, someone's like there's a big fight going on behind the scenes between the citizen and the IRS. The reality is, is that that's, you know, that may be happening, but it's more of a narrative I think a lot of people understand the importance of the tax system, want to meet their obligations, but look at these instructions and these forms and are like, I don't know what to do. So the very fact that I'm calling the IRS for help is a sign that they're trying to do the right thing and the IRS should be there to help them do the right thing. I and mean, that is 
fundamental to the IRS. You read the IRS mission statement, it anchors on helping the public meet their tax obligations. This blows my mind, Danny, and you know these numbers, I'm sure. I, I did not until I read the testimony of your successor, uh, Commissioner Reddig, uh, back in May. March 15th of this year, 8.6 million calls in one day, 1,500 calls per second compared to normal filing season volume of up to 3 million calls a day. That's out of the LA Times story that I cited. We'll link that in the show notes, uh, today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. But what fixes that? Is What's the call center solution in a situation where you go from 3 million a day during the normal filing season? I imagine when it's not filing season, it's much lower. And then uh, on one particular day, you might scale up to 8.5 million calls in one day. I mean, I, I can I, see where fun. I know we're not anywhere near where we need to be funding-wise, but I can see we're trying to figure out how you fund that might be pretty complicated. I think there's a couple of different levers that you need to look at, and some are more realistic than others. One is like simplifying things so that you uh, lower the demand for help. You know, and so the, the, the more we're going to have a, comp a complicated tax system, the more we're going to have this type of, of traffic into the call center. So that's one thing. The second thing is getting more people at the other end of the phone to be able to handle this call volume. And right now we just don't have that. So more people there to field these phone calls with the right training to get to resolution. And then another lever is, you know, using more uh, technology and automated approaches to answer some of the low hanging fruit questions that come in. Cause you can imagine like with anything, I know it's frustrating when you like call your cable company or something and you can't get a, a human being on the end, uh, on the end. I mean, part of that is still being worked out in terms of how to make sure that it's optimized. But what what's trying to be done here is to like weed out questions that can be very quickly answered uh, to clog up the lines without that, that are clogging up the lines without a human answering. And that is something that, you know, another part of the of the technology and data and analytics and algorithms that can be put in place to like better segment the phone calls so that the quicker ones can be handled in automated ways and saving the more complicated ones for for the people at the end. So there's a bunch of different levels levers that can be pulled. I hope this story gets the attention of uh, people in decision making powers to understand that that this is a manifestation of when you're not proactively trying to get in front of the challenge that they have. Well, and the other thing, the other wrinkle I see, Danny, is that if the government doesn't figure out these solutions that are equitable to every citizen, then somebody will figure out some solution that works for them and whoever they can sell their solutions to. I think that's the other thing here. We're almost out of time. I want to shout out your terrific new episode of Gov Actually with Beth Simone Novak. What was your number one takeaway from that, you and your fellow, your uh, co-host, Dan Tangerlini? My number one takeaway was that, um, that the citizens' trust in government is absolutely essential to government being successful and that we have to figure out not just how to meet our missions in government, but we have to make sure that we're understanding like what are the levers that we can pull to make sure that the citizen understands the important role government is playing and um, and and is along for the ride rather than always seeing the government as the antagonist in any story. Um, I think her book does an excellent job of laying out some of the challenges of why of where we are with citizens trust in government and i think that should be a big 
uh, discussion point going forward among policymakers. We shoot ourselves in the foot when we make the government out to be the bad guy. Um, the government should be held accountable, <laughs> no doubt. And when the government messes up, we should know about it. And we shouldn't fund programs that don't work. But we can't always create the light that the government in uh, stories in the light that the government is the antagonist in every story, because ultimately we all suffer from that. Beth Simone Novak's book is Solving Public Problems, A Practical Guide to Fix Our Government and Change Our World. She's on the latest episode of the Gov Actually podcast from FedScoop. Danny Werfel is one of the co-hosts of that. Thank you very much for coming on today's program, my friend. Thank you, Francis. I hope you have me back. Well, how can I not? We were in the same network. I have I to do that. All right. Well, I just, you know, I don't know. Maybe I didn't do well on this. Episode. No, you were great. You always are okay. great. Thank you, my friend. Thank you, Francis. You can find a link to the story about the IRS call center at thedailyscooppodcast.com. Coming up on today's Daily Scoop podcast, Data turbocharges a new tool for pandemic recovery accountability. The chair of the PRAC, Michael Horowitz, will tell you how it works later in the program. The Daily Scoop podcast lineup is available ahead of time on Twitter. You follow the show at Daily Scoop Pod. Seven new agency IT projects will get money from the Technology Modernization Fund. The $311 million the agencies will get only uses up about a third of the money the fund got from the stimulus bill. Tony Scott is chairman of the Tony Scott Group. He's former chief information officer of the United States. Tony, you pushed for this when you were the CIO. It is alive now, and only about a third of the money is out the door. What does that say to you about where the TMF might be headed next, Tony? Welcome. Well, yeah, thanks for having me, Francis. Um, well, I think it's all good news, you know, from my perspective. Um, you know, A, I think the speed with which uh, the board worked was, uh, I think, uh, excellent. Uh, you know, the projects uh, were applied for. Uh, my understanding is they were way oversubscribed, and these were the first ones out of the gate. So I think you can anticipate uh, any number of additional projects coming. Um, I think the board needs to demonstrate to the appropriators uh, that, uh, you know, they're using this money wisely. And uh, as you saw in the awards, a lot of them are for, you know, zero trust, uh, modernizing uh, core infrastructure, uh, modernizing citizen-facing applications. So these are right at the heart of what the TMF was intended for. And uh, the vast majority of them uh, are going to use some form of commercial um, product. So um, I think, you know, these awards all strike right at the heart of what, uh, you know, the, the um, fund was intended for. Um, you've got mainframe modernization. You've got moving legacy apps to the cloud. Uh, it's spot on, and uh, I was really pleased with what I saw. You know what? I jumped out at me right away. I always go to the money, Tony, as people like you and others have instructed me in Washington. Just one of the programs, $187 million to improve digital security at Federal Government Authentication Service, login.gov. My colleague John Hewitt-Jones writes on fedscoop.com. That's more than all of the money that the TMF had from the very beginning in that one project. What do you think that says about the potential for that rest of that 600 and however many million are left about the ability to do really big projects and, and thereby tackling really big problems? Well, I, I think it, it 
um, put some exclamation point on the point we were trying to make uh, when we created the TMF, which was agencies, you know, most often never get the funding they need to make truly transformational changes. They get, you know, traditionally dribs and drabs and uh, and even when they get substantial money, sometimes it's over a really long period of time. And it's just hard to do these transformational kinds of uh, projects with uh, dribs and drabs and the uncertainty of funding over, you know, multiple budget years. Sonny Hashmi, the commissioner of the FAST, was on the program last week and talking about these when they rolled out. And he couldn't address at that time the repayment structures for the agencies that are getting this money. Does that matter given the fact that the flexibility now exists in law and that organizations across government have more flexibility? Does it matter how they pay it back or how fast they pay it back or if they even pay it back? Well, some of them, by the changes that were made, um, are not going to get paid back. And, and that's probably okay. Um, particularly the cybersecurity ones, you know, I, I would give them a hall pass, you know, probably anyhow. But let me go back to the reason for the payback um, in the first place. When we first thought of this, the, the reason was twofold. One, we wanted to create a fund that would grow over time and repayment would help, you know, replenish the coffers um, if uh, projects were successful um, and allow the fund to grow and take on more meaningful uh, projects. Uh, the second was, uh, and this is just a management philosophy, but uh, we were hoping to encourage much better governance. Um, and if, if repayment is a part of the budget commitment you have to make every year, uh, as a management team, you're going to tend to focus on those things and make sure they're successful and have a little, you know, better oversight and governance versus the traditional government money you get in an agency, which is just, here's some money, now let's move on to the next thing. And there's less governance and less oversight than, than maybe there should have been in some cases. Um, so for me, you know, the jury's out. I still believe in the principle of repayment. Um, I think if we can get uh, substantial uh, additional funding for TMF over the years, then maybe the repayment thing will take, you know, uh, become less important. I still worry about the governance side and, uh, you know, we'll see what happens with that. But, um, you know, the ones that are cybersecurity related in particular, you know, give them a hall pass, you know, get that work done as fast as you can get it done. Mm -hmm. You will recall, I'm sure, that when you and your colleagues were advocating for what became the Technology Modernization Fund, there were kind of two competing models at the beginning. There was the TMF and there was the concept of revolving funds at the agencies, and they the compromise wound up being, well, we'll do both of them. In the interim time, there's been tons of discussion about the TMF. The discussion about the revolving funds at the agencies, it seems to me, has been conspicuous in its absence. Hardly anybody talks about doing them. I'm not aware of many, if any, agencies really actively pursuing them. Does that matter at this point? Or is it okay if if my characterization is correct? And if it's not, 
please correct me. But if my characterization is correct, does it matter at this point that that idea seems to have kind of died on the vine? Well, I think it's an idea that's probably going to end up getting revisited, uh, quite honestly. Um, you're right. Um, and, and I'll, again, let's do a refresh, but not every agency had these, you know, working capital funds that could be used for IT projects. So uh, there was success in uh, creating the, uh, the, the vessel for working capital funds in every agency. Uh, and that got done. Um, and then uh, in subsequent budget years, you've had the case where um, even though the vessel existed, the, the place where you could put unspent uh, capital, uh, a lot of agencies just didn't focus on that, or it got used for other, you know, really urgent uh, purposes. I think with the success of TMF, um, the case is going to be made that, you know, substantial funding for critical IT projects is a great idea and delivers results. And I think people are going to look around and say, what other tools uh, do we have? Because, uh, you know, for instance, the problem is the urgency for these things, even with all of the success of the TMF, is a drop in the bucket compared to what's actually needed. And I'm hoping there's some momentum that builds on, you know, let's get this ball rolling and let's get um, really after some of these uh, really critical projects. And, and I think tools like these working capital funds are important tools uh, in, that, in that journey. Tony Scott, thanks very much. Always appreciate the historical insight and uh, the insight on what's going on today. Thanks, my friend. My pleasure. You can read more about the TMF Awards in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop Podcast, coming on Friday's program, the way ahead for some of government's biggest contracting programs. Former GSA Administrator Emily Murphy is here to tell you what to watch on the new Polaris contract and the services Mac. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Friday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. Data is driving a new weapon against waste, fraud, and abuse for the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee. The PRAC's Pandemic Analytics Center of Excellence builds on a tool one of the committee's predecessors used. Michael Horowitz is the chair of the PRAC. He's the inspector general at the Department of Justice. Michael, welcome. It is good to see you. Thanks for coming on the program. I read the PACE applies the best practices from the former Recovery Accountability and Transparency Board's Recovery Operations Center. What did you adapt from the ROC that the RAT board used, and how are you using it in the PRAC's efforts? Welcome. Great to be here, uh, Francis, with you. And um, w there are a lot of lessons to be learned from how the recovery board, uh, affectionately known as the RAP board, as you indicated, um, which I was on when I became an IG back in 2012, uh, how we operated, how we learned. Because what, that was really the first large-scale effort by the IG community to deal with substantial recovery effort. That was, at the time, an $800 billion-plus recovery effort uh, after the Great Recession hit in 2008, 2009, that was the largest amount of money we'd ever had to deal with. Well, here we are dealing with six times and more of that amount with $5 trillion plus in spending. And so we needed to take those lessons. 
And what did we learn from that? Well, a couple things. First, it was our first foray as an IG community in a substantial way into data analytics and the use of big data. And we learned how valuable that could be. So what we're doing here is, first of all, making sure that when we get the data, we push it out. I'd urge your listeners to go to pandemicoversight.gov, our website. They can get down now to the zip code level. So just to give you a sense of this, Francis, I went there. I was curious to see you know, where I grew up. What, what businesses that I was familiar with, who, who got the money? What school districts got the money? And the public can do that. That's a takeaway from the recovery board. We got tremendous feedback from the public about the value of seeing where that money went. And we're hearing that now as well. We also learned how with that volume of money that's, that's involved, we as a, in this case, the Pandemic uh, Accountability Committee, we need to help the IGs deal with this enormous number of pieces, the dollars. And so that's what we're trying to do. We're really, really trying to leverage the resources Congress gave to us as a committee to help the IG community move forward in dealing with $5 trillion worth of oversight. I note that uh, that 87% of the total funds have been spent uh, from the, uh, the CARES Act as of June 30th. And the deadline for expenditures is December 31st, 2021. That's such a truncated window for such an expanded amount of money as you just indicated, Michael. How does that uh, in, uh, inform the way that you go about doing the work that you're doing on the PRAC? So one of the key issues for us as the IG is when we have situations like that where there are deadlines to spend money, we're always worried about particularly the spending in the last quarter or so of that time period because we want to make sure that there's thoughtful, appropriate spending of the money. And if there's a rush to get out money, that's obviously a, a risk factor. So what we're doing at the PRAC is we've, in terms of the big data, is we've created risk factors and we've worked with IGs in analyzing the data so they can run those risk factors against the data they're getting so that they can then select from the riskiest of potential awards or just dollar distributions and do oversight over those awards, those grants, those contracts. That's what we're trying to do. We're, we're, we're taking the information we've gotten from prior uh, spending, uh, matched it against where we found fraud and misuse and inappropriate awards, taking that information, scoring it, creating risk factors, and then passing it on to the IGs. Is there a difference in the tools that you have available to you now compared to what the RAT board had available to it? Or is it just a matter of scale that you have more data maybe now than you did 10 years ago? I, I think the tools have evolved and they've evolved in this, in this way, which is obviously our availability and use of data analytics as an IG oversight community has expanded. We're, we're far more sophisticated today as is frankly, that analytics tool than it was 12 years ago. Uh, and so we have that capability. We also have had more support from Congress and our appropriators over the years uh, so that we can build our own uh, data analytics tools. For example, my office at the Department of Justice, Office of the Inspector General. When I came on board in 2012, we didn't have a data analytics platform. I now have one in my shop. 
And so what I'm looking for from the Pandemic Response Accountability Committee, the PRAC, is information from them that I can then plug into my data analytics system, as opposed to, say, in 2009, when I would have been entirely reliant on the RAC board to give me the information I needed. So that's a that's been a very substantial change for us. I note uh, this from your website. The Data Act of 2014 authorized the Treasury Department to transfer the uh, RAT Board's Recovery Operations Center's assets to Treasury when the organization sunset. The Treasury elected not to do so. The ROC was dissolved in September 2015. Would there have been value to you, Michael, to have access to that? And will there be value? At some point in time, we'll have to do this again, I imagine, as we learned this time around. Will there be value in preserving what you and your colleagues on the PRAC have developed this time around for whoever the next people are that follow behind you and have to do this again? Absolutely, and it's a great question, Francis, because as you noted, what happened when the recovery board went out of existence and the ROC, the Recovery Operations Center, our data analytics platform, the question was, what do we do with it? And unfortunately, it never went anywhere. It got dismantled. Gene Dodaro, the Controller General at GAO, has testified about um, that and, and how he had hoped it continued to exist for the same reason we had hoped it would continue to exist. If we would have had that platform there to build on right away, as well as, by the way, in the intervening five, six years, where there were other disasters, right? Sadly, unfortunately, we have earthquakes, hurricanes, natural disasters uh, frequently now. Um, and so that kind of tool would be helpful. Our plan here, we've created what we're calling the PACE, the um, a center of excellence for uh, data analytics for the pandemic effort. Our hope is to, and, and our plan is, and we're doing this right now, we're building it in a scalable way. So right now it's designed to deal with $5 trillion worth of oversight. That may not be needed in four more years when we sunset as a committee. Our plan is to have it usable as a platform so that if Congress and the administration that's in office at that time wants to support it, it can do so. It will be there for the IG community. And boy, if there's one takeaway from what happened after 2014 to today, it's that would be a wise investment because there wouldn't be a need every time this occurs to rebuild things. Um, I can think of no better group of people to audit or investigate the success of an organization than you and your colleagues, Michael. How will you do so at some point in the future? How will you determine that this PACE, this center of excellence, achieved what you wanted it to achieve? Or, or is it demonstrable through the results that you get on an ongoing basis? So I, I do think it's been demonstrable on an ongoing basis now. We've just started it. And what, for example, we've already done is build a risk scoring model and, an, and, a, and a proposal plan for, for example, the Small Business Administration IG. They've gone from getting about a thousand complaints a year to over a hundred thousand complaints now. They're on the pace for a year because of the questions coming in about PPP loans, idle loans, other spending. That platform, for example, is already helping them sort through and figure out you know, where the needles are in those haystacks of complaint. So we're already doing that. We're helping Treasury OIG on the 
Coronavirus Relief Fund, the, the $150 billion uh, fund that we keep putting up new data on. Uh, same thing. How can they figure out promptly whether they're getting the data they need or they're not getting the data? So we're already delivering in that regard. But we certainly do plan to keep track of how many investigative matters have we helped and advanced. Um, how many audits? How many reviews? Because when you're dealing certainly with $5 trillion worth of spending, particularly on the audit and review side, you really want to look at the riskiest of um, the spending uh, because we, we have limited resources. So we've got to look at that. And so we expect it'll help there. And I'll just give you an example of where we are for my own shop and where other IGs are. We're already looking to see whether there are you know, uh, individuals in federal employment, um, in, um, in my case, in the prison system, that may well have gotten these kind of benefits that clearly shouldn't have. Um, and using information that's out there to try and do that. Um, and so those are the kinds of things uh, that we're trying to work on and, and, and use this platform for. And it's a very effective tool in trying to figure out with $5 trillion going out the door, where are the places we really need to focus our attention? Michael Horowitz, the chairman of the PRAC, thank you very much for coming on the program today. I appreciate your time. Great to be here, Francis. Thanks so much. You can read more about the PRAC's Center of Excellence and its waste, fraud, and abuse work in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop Podcast is available on all the podcast platforms now. If you've already ranked it, thanks very much for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop Podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. A deep dive on two big contract programs with former GSA Administrator Emily Murphy is on Friday's show. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks for listening.